So again, good morning. Thank you for being here today. Do you know that everybody lives for something? And everybody is going to worship someone or something. It's without exception. And Jesus argues that if he is not the thing, whatever it is, it's going to fail you and it's going to enslave you. There was a, an American writer, his name's David Foster Wallace. And to my knowledge, David Foster Wallace is not a believer. Uh, he actually died in 2008. He lived a life of struggle. He lived a life of depression and also a lot of chemical addiction and dependency. But he did an address to a group of graduating students, and he addresses this fact of worship. Uh, he was an award-winning, best-selling novelist, essayist. And this is what he said at a commencement address to these graduating students. He said this because here's something else that's true. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. He said, the only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. <clears throat> and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. You see, that thing that you are living for, uh, by virtue of your desire, it owns you. If you desperately need affirmation from the works of your kids, you're going to lay burdens on them they can't possibly begin to bear. If it's retirement that you're living for, you're always going to be watching fearfully what the stock market's doing. And these things end up being that which we worship. And as I said in the beginning, each and every one of them will enslave you. And to be honest, even reading through the list, even thinking about my own life, I've experienced that. I know the idols. And I know how quickly these things have taken over my mind at times when I've let them. And in the end, only God can ultimately satisfy us as an object of our worship and our affections. So what I want to talk about this morning then is how can I be a true worshiper of God? How can I be a true worshiper of God? Honestly, worship has been something on my mind all my life, thinking about it, wondering, am I doing it right? Is this the right way? Also understanding that I'm never going to do this perfectly. The passage we're going to look at today, one of the passages comes from John chapter 4. And before I read this, just let me give you a little bit of background. It's a conversation that Jesus is having with a woman beside a well. She's a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans were looked down on by the Jews. They were half Jewish. They were half Gentile. Through the course of their history, they had worshipped wrong uh, beings and things. And they also had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. That's where they believed that uh, true worship from Moses was supposed to happen as opposed to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So now we enter into this, converse, this conversation Jesus is having, and we'll be starting with verse 21 of John chapter 4. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4, 
starting at verse 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 4, 21. And starting there, it says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You may be seated. We're starting, actually we're continuing a new series we started last week called The Mission in Motion. We're talking about why does First Baptist Church exist? What are we here to do? We've got a wonderful mission statement. We've got it on the walls on your left and your right to know him and to make him known. That is to know God and to make God known. And if we aren't living out our mission, then they're just words on the wall. We don't want that. The question is, okay, then how do we live out the mission of First Baptist Church? Last week, we went through Acts chapter 2, looked at verses 41 through 47, and four action words came from those verses, to worship, grow, connect, and serve. And what I want to focus on this morning is that first one, worship, because it is vital in the life of the Christian. Like I said at the beginning, everybody's going to worship something. What we have to choose is what or who are we going to worship. So I'd like to approach the topic like this. First of all, well, what is worship? Then talk about, well, why do we worship? And then finally, how do we worship? So those three questions, I'd like to go through those now. Um, in order to answer that first question, how do I be a true worshiper, we've got to answer all three. So then what is worship? And I think this is, um, when we think of worship, we, we typically think, well, that's the part of the service where we sing, right? Then we're, we're worshiping. We kind of do this other thing. We go into a sermon, then we're taught. But the worshiping is happening when we're singing, which is true, but it goes much further than that. As a matter of fact, even on an individual level, through the week, in whatever we're doing, it's called to be an act of worship. We see it in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? It means no matter what we do, we should be doing it in such a way that we make God look good. We do it humbly, we do it lovingly, we do it to the best of our ability with the gifts that God has given us, not sacrificing what he doesn't intend us to sacrifice, but but doing it as well as we can, and that is worship to God. But then also there's another kind of worship, it's what we do here during this hour on any given Sunday, that is called corporate worship. We gather together corporately, and we worship together. It's vitally important to the church. There's this Greek word, ekklesia, that's translated into church, and it literally means gathering. It means being together. 
with other people who believe what you and I do about God. We do this thing called worship. It literally means to give worth to someone or something. That's, what the, that's where we get the word worship. If, to, to be literal, it'd be worth-ship. And that's what we're doing here. Now, what all does that encompass? And I want to go back to that verse I started out with in the call to worship. What do we sort of need to do? We get a taste of it in Colossians 3.16. I read it before. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and exhorting. That means to encourage one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, all with grace in your hearts to God. So those are what we are commanded to do when we gather together. Notice the, the plurals there. And it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is to be not just a Sunday, but a daily meditation on what God's word says, to read it. And by the way, part of my job is to help you in that process. I, I preach God's word, and then we teach it from time to time through the week. And then there's a myriad of ways that you can understand God's word more as you read it on your own and listen to teachers online. Then also we should counsel each other. That is to, to give each other advice, to seek it out from one another, and to encourage each other to keep going because life's hard, isn't it? And then it says to sing psalms. That would be from the book of Psalms. Then hymns, which are other songs of praise and spiritual songs. Those are songs that have the intent of praising and singing truth to God. There's other elements to worship as well, right? From time to time, we take communion. We celebrate what Christ did for us. We also celebrate baptisms. That's a visible sign of an invisible grace. We'll be doing that again after second service today. And all these elements, the singing, the preaching, communion, baptism, and the offerings, uh, they are all part of corporate worship. So I think a good definition of why do we worship, worship is, or what is worship? Worship is the activity of glorifying God in His presence with our voices and our hearts. See, what we're after in worship, again, on any given Sunday when we come together, we are coming into God's presence in a special way that we don't do normally. It's something different than what we do day to day and week to week. And I want to go back in Scripture for just a moment because worship has changed through Scripture. If we go back into the Garden of Eden, how did worship look? It was very, very simple. It's very straightforward. We had Adam and Eve walking day to day, face to face with God Himself. And the Garden itself, the Garden of Eden, was God's sanctuary. Now, sanctuary is where God comes to dwell with men. And that's what you see going on in the Garden of Eden. That was worship. But then there, things changed, didn't they? Sin came in. Man was no longer able to dwell in that same way with God. So then for a while, it was uh, an altar built here and there. It was a sacrifice that was offered to God. You see that with Noah. Then you come to the Tower of Babel, and man tried to get back to God on his own terms, and it doesn't work that way. And with the Tower of Babel, there in the beginning book, the, the early part of Genesis again, we tried to build a city up to God, and he's like, it doesn't work that way. I'm going to spread you out. And again, there's more sacrifices, and we don't see God dwelling with man again, in a sense, till we get to the tabernacle. And as those Israelites were wandering around, they had this big golden chest, the Ark of the Covenant, that they kept in the tabernacle. 
And again, God is dwelling there with man. But the only person that could walk into the presence of God was the high priest and only one time a year. And they're traveling around. Then we get to the temple, and we have a permanent structure. As a matter of fact, I've got a picture of some of these. This is the, the tabernacle where God's ark was kept in that uh, part there with the roof. And then we get to the temple where, again, there was a holy of holies in the back part of that tall structure. And then we come to the New Testament. And then the program changes again. And Christ comes on the scene. But even here in the temple, from time to time, there was this convergence. And it was when heaven would come down and it would meet the earth, and sometimes a few prophets got a glimpse of what was going on. We see it in Isaiah chapter 6. In verses 1 through 4, this is Isaiah, uh, one, of the, one of God's prophets in, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Again, this is Isaiah. He's in the temple, and he's seeing this. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. See, Isaiah was able to peer into that heavenly sanctuary from earth, and he got a glimpse of this other world. And you read this, and it's, it's kind of, man, it sounds, I mean, it sounds like he's almost tripping on something when he's, but... He's having a scene inside the, the heavenly kingdom, and it's beyond our imagination. It's this place where worship is happening with these angels, and he sees it from this earthly sanctuary. And then again, coming in now to the New Testament, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we get to experience worship in a whole new way, because now God dwells in each and every one of us. Tozer spoke about this. If you know the writer A.W. Tozer, he said, why did Christ come? Why was he conceived? Why was he born? Why was he crucified? Why did he rise again? Why is he now at the right hand of the Father? The answer to all these questions is in order that he might make worshipers out of rebels, in order that he might restore us again to the place of worship we knew when we were first created. You see, sometime in the future, God's going to restore that earthly sanctuary. At some time in the future, we will again walk face to face with God like they did in the garden. This, in a nutshell, is, is worship. And then we get this New Testament glimpse again in the end times, Revelation 21. John says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This, in a nutshell, is worship. But, you know, it doesn't even really begin to scratch the surface. You know, one of the, my favorite things to do is, is fishing. 
you know, I love to get out there, and it's just always a thrill to see what's going to jump on that hook next, because I can kind of just focus on that next cast and, and where it's going to go. But if I was just going to define fishing, I would say, well, you're just trying to manipulate a fish with a piece of bait and a hook. Well, that doesn't scratch the surface. It doesn't talk about the feelings and the joy and the surroundings. And fill in the blank, what is that thing you love to do? See, worship, we can define it, but it's also to be experienced. We do it. That moves me on to this next question. Well, why do we worship? Why do we worship? There's several reasons. I want to focus on two that I think come straight, uh, straight to us from the Word of God. There's several things that happen, but focusing just on two. And, and the first one is because God draws near to us when we worship. We see this in James 4.8. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So as we come together and we confess our sins to God, James says God draws near. Now, what does that mean? You may think, well, I don't like seeing him. No, you don't. But we can trust that it's that it's happening. You see, when we come together and we engage our whole bodies, right? We're standing, we're sitting, we're listening, we're singing. When we're engaging ourselves, things are happening that we don't even know are happening. And our thinking begins to change. And our feelings can begin to change. We start thinking more rightly. As we start thinking, we start doing more rightly. As we do more rightly, we start feeling more rightly. And I think that there's a, there's a hymn writer. Her name is uh, Helen Limmel. She wrote a wonderful song called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And just in one stanza, it says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, when you come into worship, we bring a lot of anxiety and pain with us, right? On any given Sunday, I know that Things can be hectic in the household. Frankly, it's that one morning a week where you're trying to get everybody out the door at the same time to go to the same place, and you're angry. The dog's not cooperating. The kids are screaming. They won't get dressed. You can't get breakfast ready fast enough. And then everybody's mad by the time you get in the car. Hopefully, you're not still mad by the time you get here. All that's going on. But see, then you come in. You can take a deep breath. And by the grace of God, the volume starts to get turned down just a bit on everything that gives you pain and anxiety, the worries of the world. God becomes bigger. The earth grows smaller. The worries of life grow smaller. God draws near. And then secondly, and this is related to the first one too, is to receive God's ministry. Receive God's ministry. Look at Hebrews 4.16. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And notice the plurals. It's us and it's we. And we, we find mercy and grace when we worship God in a special way. God ministers directly to each and every one of us. And there's mystery to this. Uh, he strengthens our faith. He intensifies our awareness of His presence. And we receive refreshment 
down to our bones, in our spirits. And yes, when we come here, we should be physically, mentally, and emotionally involved in the act of worship. Every bit of our being. That's why all the activities here, the prayer, all these things involve every single part of us, both the material, our physical bodies, and the immaterial, our spirits that people can't see. And the degree to which we can focus on these things, I believe, is the degree to which we are going to receive this mysterious ministry from God. This is why we worship. All of these things are happening, and there is an element of mystery to it. I don't want to ever neglect that element of mystery, even though it makes me uncomfortable sometimes. So then this next final question, well, how do we worship? How do we worship? And uh, for this, we, we looked at John chapter 4, the passage we read earlier. We stepped into that conversation with that Samaritan woman, and Jesus told this woman um, information he could only have known supernaturally. He goes on to tell her that she's had five husbands. He said, I know the man you're currently living with is not your husband. And Jews didn't hang out with Samaritans. They were of mixed race. They were half Jew, half Gentile. They'd not gotten along in the past. And Samaritans believe that worship should happen on a different place, a different mountain. That discussion led into verses 23 and 24. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So I want to talk just for a moment about what that means. I want to drill down on it then practically how to do it. Um, in verse 23 it says, All worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? It's an interesting phrase. It's really uh, two nouns joined by a conjunction, um, but uh, it, it's expressing a single idea. And I want to dip into what one of my favorite teachers, Tom Constable, said about this in seminary. He said, Jesus was describing one characteristic with, with two nouns, not two separate characteristics of worship. He said, we could translate this truly spiritual. So even though the Holy Spirit empowers this kind of worship, this doesn't seem to be totally a reference to just the Holy Spirit. It means that we are to worship God with our spirits. And it's referring to that part of every person, this immaterial part of us. And, and it means that if we're going to worship God, we do it not only with our bodies and with our minds, but with our spirits. And he, uh, Christ attested to this, um, actually referring to uh, Mary in Luke chapter 1. Um, and Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has begun to rejoice in God my Savior. And again, you know, this kind of talk makes me uncomfortable. Like I'm an engineer by trade. And I like the technical, the tangible parts of the person. And when I start talking about this sort of like ethereal sort of... Uh, it's almost phantomish kind of talk. It, it makes me uncomfortable because it demands that I walk by faith and believe in a world that is unseen. I walk by faith and not by sight. And I'm reminded of this deep, deep mystery of the God that I serve. And then how do I engage in this kind of worshiper? 
to be uh, this kind of a worshiper, a true worshiper. The kind that the Father is seeking and, the war- and is worshiping in spirit and truth. And I want to very practically just go through um, five aspects to this. First, it's got to start with salvation. It's got to start with salvation. <clears throat> you must have trusted Christ as your Savior. Because that gives you the proper view of God and yourself. Christ came and was sacrificed for your sin and mine. Every single one of us, without fail, comes into this world as a sinner. Jesus took the sin on himself. He took that cancer, and he put it in his own body, and he sacrificed himself for us. That involves recognition of our own sinful hearts. And trusting in Christ is having made a way possible for all that sin to be forgiven. If you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, please come talk to me at the end of the service. That's the starting place, the saving work of Christ. But then secondly, it also involves seeing God as He is. For example, in the book of Isaiah, that picture we saw, those seraphim of heaven are beholding the glory of God. And the scriptures say in verse 3, they're repeatedly crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of His glory. And then the disciples, when they were with Him, they saw Him out walking on the water. It says in Matthew 14, that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You see, both of these responses of worship came with a realization of who God is. And I love the way there's one author, Edmund Clowney, he puts it this way in his book. He said, the church, he states this, the, the book is called The Church. He says, the transcendent glory of God draws worship. The heavens declare the glory of God. Our minds reel before the vastness of the universe. A major earthquake that fills us with terror is less than infinitesimal when compared with the force that flings galaxies across light years of space or holds them together in the wrinkles of background radiation. One short thunderstorm, a tiny moment in the atmospheric history of our small planet can leave us breathless. But God's exalted above all his creation. No cosmic process can disclose the immensity of his being or the infinite simplicity of his wisdom. You see, when we're going to worship God, we need to come in informed. Who is this God? And it's essential to get to a place where the magnitude of God gets down to our heart level. Then we're ready to worship. And then third, pray. By praying. I skipped a little ahead there. Third is by praying. Uh, I hope you take a moment to pray before you make, even if you are driving in and you remember, oh, I need to pray before I go into church. Take a moment and speak to God. Prayer is essential in the life of a Christian, it's essentially an act of worship. Every morning at 8 30, I meet with at least two elders back in the room so we can pray and get prepared for the worship service that's going to happen. And every morning before I get up, on, particularly on Sundays, I try to spend at least 15, 20 minutes praying just to get ready because this is an awesome responsibility I have. And it's essential in the life of worship. Um, and we have times of corporate prayer. Where we're all concentrating together on what's being said. It's so easy to trail off mentally. Please be praying. And then fourth, sing. Sing and sing out loud doesn't matter how good you are. The person that's listening to you in heaven, he doesn't care how good you are, okay? 
If anybody ever says anything about your prayers or your singing, just say, first of all, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> and secondly, the one I am talking to does not seem to mind. It says in Psalm 47, 6, sing praises to God. Sing praises, sing praises to our King. Sing praises. We're told four times in one verse, and the Bible contains 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands to sing. The longest book of the Bible, the Psalms, is a book of songs to be sung to God. In the New Testament, we're commanded not once but twice to sing homes, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And I'm thankful for Sam and our musicians that lead us every single Sunday. And this church has done a better job of incorporating different kinds of music than any church I've ever been in in my entire life. Because we don't split it up into a contemporary service and a traditional service. You end up with a younger church and you end up with an older church when you do that. And we value all ages sitting together at the same time. So we sing. And then finally, by sacrifice, by sacrifice. I'd like to refer it to it as an attitude of sacrifice. In other words, this prevents me from coming into a worship service with an attitude of pragmatism. Now, what is an attitude of pragmatism? That's when I step in and say, okay, what's in it for me today? You see, that's the wrong attitude to start worship with. This is what God wants. And we, we get some insight on sacrifice when we go to uh, Hebrews 11.4. It refers to an old story. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. This is what God wants. Faithfully giving and trusting that God will provide is an act of faith. That's why taking up an offering, giving back to God a portion of what he's given to us is part of the act of worship. We also celebrate God's sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice through communion. It's where we physically drink juice to commemorate the blood shed and eat the bread, commemorate the body that was given to sacrifice for us. We sacrifice our time and treasure to be here. It is a sacrifice to come in and give up your morning, give up your Sunday morning, but you're not really giving up anything, are you? In comparison of what Christ gave up for us so that we could be with him eternally. People with a living faith make it their desire to please God. So to conclude this, to wrap it all up together, be a true worshiper by being physically, spiritually, and emotionally present with God and his people. Be all here when you're here. I want to close with a brief story. This is from a missionary named Stuart Sachs. And when he was serving in Paraguay, a man came to him. His name was Raphael. He came and he sat on his porch. And he said he was eating his dinner. He went out and he said, um, what do you want? <laughs> and the guy responded with this phrase. He said, hum, hnek, met. And he asked him again, well, what can I do for you? And he said the answer was the same. And the, the translation of that phrase is, I don't want anything. I have just come near. When he was talking to another missionary about this, he was a little confused. And the missionary explained that it was Raphael's way of honoring him. He said he didn't want anything. He just wanted to sit on his porch. He found pleasure in just being near him. 
You see, that's what we do when we come to God to worship. We're finding pleasure in just being near him. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that our hearts would now be prepared to sing praises to you. Thank you for this time together. Amen.